Welcome to the second episode of the Research Liaison Team Open Knowledge Podcast. My name is Holly Limbert and I'm the Repository and Open Access Librarian at the University of Derby. I work in the library and manage our research repository Eudora and provide advice and guidance on the open research landscape with a particular focus on open access. The release of this podcast is in celebration of Open Access Week and I will be joined by some expert guest speakers to discuss their roles and passions, equity and open knowledge, and the future of scholarly communications. This second episode will focus on persistent identifiers, and I'm pleased to welcome two guests, Kirsty Wallace and Dr. Adam Biles-Moore. Kirsty is the Head of Research Liaison in Library Services at University College London. She also leads the day-to-day operations of the Office for Open Science and Scholarship at UCL. Kirsty has worked in research support roles at a number of institutions and has over 10 years experience in libraries. She is a supporter of all aspects of open science and has been a keen advocate for different types of PIDs since her involvement with the original UK Torch of ORCID projects supported by JISC in 2014. Dr Adam Viles-Moore is currently the Product Specialist for Persistent Identifiers in the Open Research Team at JISC. He is part of the team supporting the UK ORCID Consortium and an advocate of the need for the outputs of research to be openly available and easy to discover and access. Adam has experience across a wide array of enabling technologies and infrastructures, including metacognitive and adaptive learning, hypertext, bioinformatics and research information management systems and repository architecture. His current interests focus on ensuring the global connectivity enabled by PIDs, infrastructure and metadata and how these allow for equitable discovery and access for all scholarly work and developing the intertwingular nature of hyperconnected information structures. Welcome Kirsty and Adam, thank you for taking the time to be here today. No problem. You're welcome. So seeing as you both have interest in persistent identifiers or PIDs for short, um, could you both talk a bit about what you think some of the key challenges are relating to PIDs um, in relation to ensuring equity in open research or open knowledge? Um, okay, so the, the challenges um, relating to persistent identifiers at the moment, I think, are, are two. Um, and they are, first of all, um, kind of incompleteness. Um, they are more mature than when they started out with. And um, I've just put out a blog about some of the interesting things that we currently see in um, ORCID and the kind of the patterns and behaviours um, around um, ORCID IDs and the way researchers interact. Um, but the kind of issue that we have is that we're starting to rely on um, persistent identifiers. We're starting to treat them as kind of a given and then build other bits of infrastructure on top of them and say, hmm, well, I need information about a person that has just used the ORCID ID information. So I need information about a work, I need information about you know a particular article or something, I'll just use the stuff from the DOI. And unfortunately, a lot of that information still isn't you know completely reliable. Um, bits and pieces of it are missing, bits and pieces of it are not quite right. Um, if you talk to people who build these systems and say, tell you what, why don't you just give me the exact date that that was accepted on, you will see lots of crying, um, people like, <laughs> their hair, that kind of thing, you know. And um, yeah, so 
the, the infrastructure kind of linking stuff together is starting to be there. Um, but the information inside the infrastructure is not always great. Um, and the other thing is kind of around actual access to this infrastructure. Yeah. Um, if you're, let's say, UCL, I'm just picking you know, an institution out of, out of you know, at random. Um, <laughs> you, can, you, can afford, you can afford to pay for these things, one might expect. Um, the membership of the UK Oracle Consortium costs an institution money. Um, the creation of a DOI costs an institution money. Um, not everyone can access this. You know, there are open repositories like Zenodo, which will give your article a DOI, but not necessarily manageable for some institutional places. Um, and more widely, these access to these critical infrastructures um, are not necessarily equitable and open and accessible for all. And I think that's still kind of something that we need to work on. Um, the researchers themselves can get an ORCID. That's free, that's open and that is, has, and always will be. But to actually kind of manage that in an institutional context and, you know, to get some of the benefits back from the institution is still kind of a thing that there's something to be said for equity, also looking at it from the other perspective um, of someone trying to access things. Um, so one of the things that I'm interested in is about making sure that you link together the finished product with the accepted manuscript. So, for example, if you can't afford access to that journal, the accepted manuscript is out there because, especially if it's a UK-based author, it will be in a repository somewhere but the amount of people that know how to go off and find it in a repository, it's not actually that easy. So that's something that also I think needs to be addressed because a lot of effort has been made to um, make three note access so much more um, available across the board. But actually, how many people know and how many people can track back to a repository from um, an article using the DOI because it's not always there and if it's there sometimes it's typed in by hand and it's wrong etc which is what Adam was saying when ago. The, uh, um, one of the issues around kind of that green OA route um, and the kind of um, access to um, the research and information that the citizens themselves have funded for especially in like the UK context um, is that you know, while you have to pay 40 quid, um, if you're lucky, um, to get it from a journal, um, they're, they're sitting on institutional repositories. But a lot of the time, one of the reasons they're not easy to find is that they don't have these persistent identifiers necessarily attached to them. And that's one of the kind of core mandates of this uh, Coalition S Plan S technical requirement is that, and come on, um, but you know, it's it's this idea that um, they're equally discoverable and accessible as the kind of thing that's behind a paywall for a journal, um, and so that you know the, the persistent identifier points to the free and open version of the article, as well as the one that's locked away uh, behind a journal paywall. Thank you both very much. Very interesting there and. Just following on this kind of theme of equity and thinking about green open access, I suppose when we think about green open access in particular, we're thinking about kind of traditional outputs such as journal articles, book chapters. Um, and I suppose 
if we think about the arts and other disciplines that engage with like practice-based research, where it may be more difficult to assign a, a persistent identifier potentially, um, could you talk more about um, persistent identifiers in this area and kind of some of the work that might be going on around that? There's, there's two things that we need to think about when we think about kind of arts humanities um, and practice in particular. Um, sorry, arts humanities and practice. So separate two. Um, and uh, I would go for clarity, practice, the kind of study of how, how you are producing work and so on. Um, that's, that's not just an arts humanity thing. Practice is something that you do in nursing practice, something you see in architecture, practice is something that you see um, across all disciplines, right? Practice is a thing that is about looking at and appreciating kind of the form of the research that you undertake. So although it is like um, particularly stressing the art of capturing your research um, in the arts humanities because you have things like um, the practice of capturing dance and that kind of thing. There, you know, it is it is a wide and multivariate and fascinating thing. Um, the kind of capture of the outputs of current up-to-date acronymic shape um, is is a is, is is around kind of understanding the processes and workflows within that community. Um, you know, first of all, if what you do is create a uh, wonderful illuminated manuscript and what your research is about um, understanding how to recreate medieval literature, there's not going to be uh, a place to stick a DOI on that down. And, you know, it, it's about appreciating when you create the reports and the articles around that, where those places are and where those opportunities are. Um, in the Orchid Consortium Leeds workshop a couple of years ago, we had a, a great presentation from um, somebody who's working on the study of a family history. And so they spent a lot of time in an archive reading stuff, um, making notes, um, updating their notes, working, you know, and their product after about five years of this was a book. Um, so they, during their course of their research, done, you know, two workshops an interview um, and published a couple of excerpts from book chapters. So it's not necessarily that they're not using persistent identifiers, it's just that the context and sometimes even just the opportunity for persistent identifiers isn't always there. Um, I think some people mistake the scarcity of persistent identifiers for a lack of willingness to engage more particularly in practice um, research. There is this idea of the portfolio of the gathering together. Um, and for that, there is uh, a new persistent identifier, the project identifier research activity identifier called RAID, um, which allows you to kind of say, this is a project. And it gathers together all of the other things that might be involved in that. So you can add the people who are involved in this project um, using an ORCID ID, the various works or stuff that might be there using um, DOIs or whatever, and funding as well, the organizations using ROAR, um, you know, and you kind of have like this washing line um, that you can hang all of these other things on. So the kind of the project continues along um, and all the various things that come and go um, are associated with it. Uh, I think kind of the secondary challenge 
is about the kind of richness of the information that we create just kind of staying in repositories. So we spend a lot of time working when we do capture stuff on, you know, describing the performance, the event, the work, whatever. And then when it comes to like describing them in the persistent identifier in the DOI or the ORCID or something like that, um, they end up being an other and, and mm. working on that kind of keeping that richness um, and agreeing those vocabularies is something that is also important. I've been nodding along that entire time, but it's a video. I really do agree with that. And also, in my experience, especially with the more creative arts than practice, it's really difficult also to draw a box around something. So the sort of washing line approach is is really, really useful. But I think also sometimes it's sort of how do you define one output from another? So is the script and the performance of a piece separate outputs or are they the same? Um, we had a long conversation once about um, um, architecture. So how do you, about a building being a research output um, and how you yeah. would hmm. document that. And also, and actually, is that actually the output or is the design the output? And it is incredibly confusing. And I think, you know, the first step is to stop all of these things being othered and shoved into a big category of other that no one really looks at because they're deemed less important because they're not the key things that everyone goes to look for, which is just disappointing. But the second is to try and figure out how you draw boxes around some of these things and go, this is an output, this is another output, because it's all very woolly. I don't know if you'd agree with that, Adam. Oh, no, completely. Um, I, I'm just going to drop a huge note. Uh, sorry about the name dropping. So when I worked with Ted Nelson, um, <laughs> you know, the person who invented uh, hypertext and everything, um, he was very kind of like, everything like, kind of links to everything else. Um, and everything is kind of like a version of everything else or everything is a piece or a part of everything else. And what you do is you can like reference a set of things and say, this is the thing at this particular time for this particular moment. And, you know, you work out a way to kind of um, define that kind of view of the things that you're looking at. Um, and it's more kind of about a context or a facet um, and I think some of the interesting stuff that people are doing at the moment with, for example, the PID graph is looking at kind of defining a set of things. So it's a set rather than a point. Um, and I think that's starting to become more useful and relevant as, as Curtis says, we kind of recognize that it's not the most useful thing to talk about something that's written down. You want the narrative of a search article, you want the data, you want the methods, you want um, the description of the protocols, you want all of these things, not not just one thing. And, you know, with the persistent identifiers to point to them and the bits that can provide other context and links to the other things, either that people are doing for reproducibility or rights and so on, all of these things are important. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what you've talked about there in relation to the complexity surrounding the different types of output and what actually constitutes an output is an incredibly interesting 
um, thing to consider. And it's also, I suppose, quite a difficult thing to consider when we're talking about how repositories might go to represent this. And, you know, we saw this through REF with kind of practice-based outputs and colleagues in the arts kind of thinking about how to document their um, portfolios in the repository. Yeah. Like, are repositories the best place, you know, to kind of... Uh -huh to um showcase this work um and the answer might be at this moment in time not necessarily um in terms of persistent identifiers do you think um well how can they aid how can they aid repositories to kind of aid discoverability and preservation of research outputs both traditional research outputs but also thinking about practice base and arts and you know non-traditional if you like research outputs adam what's your thoughts on that and i know we've already I, kind of talked about this a bit in terms of repositories but i, I think the main thing is that um partly it's, it's about pointing to them right so yeah. i think one of the things that repositories have been good at is capturing um persistent identifiers so we've we've kind of got to again as Kirsty said so we kind of got to a more mature kind of landscape so we've got slightly more mature persistent identifiers um i think Orchid was launched 2012 um and we've got kind of repositories that are aware of these persistent identifiers i mean you'd, you'd be a bit shocked if there was a repository that didn't have somewhere to put DOIs. absolutely yeah but at the same time it, it's you know again assigning the DOIs if there isn't one already to to the works and so on in the repositories being aware of the shape of the information that's in the repositories and then exposing that you know working working for the good of the people who want to engage with that um, so making sure that the contents of the repository are accessible and that you can engage with them, access them, and then you can build inquiry on top of them. So that the stuff in the repository is, isn't there so you can look at how many things you have in your repository. It's not like a reward bucket, you know, where you gradually fill it up and you go, hooray, I've got stuff in my repository. There's no point in doing that. You might as well just stick them in a drive in the back of the university or do what we did in the old days of ref just put them on the big van yeah. the idea behind a, a good repository or or some people did this year sorry um terrible flashbacks and discussions um, <laughs> but but what what a, sorry, what you know what a good repository does is allow you to say here is some great research or here is some research we produced let's wait until made when the ref tells you um here is some research and um you know look at it um use it um and then build stuff on top of it and feed that back and build science build information there are some procedural issues with um pids and repositories um for example so you put in an author accepted manuscript within three months of acceptance but quite often you don't get a doi until it's published so there's a big issue there with people not going back in and retroactively adding this mm. information. So what needs to happen is kind of the other way around. So if you preprint 
your publication and get a DOI from the preprint server, so the DOI can then go up the chain. So these kinds of issues are sort of outstanding. And I think there is real potential for PIDs to aid discoverability. And also going back to what we were talking about with equity, is you know, making these accepted manuscripts, green open access versions, things easier to find. But only if the, the procedures track properly and the DOIs aren't left out of the repository because no one's got time to go back and add them all by hand, for example. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just um, well, there's that, and like a really, really old job was manual data entry of like getting a sheet of things and typing them in. The whole thing is about ensuring, you know, where possible these um, these persistent identifiers, and that goes back to the start where we talked about, you know, what what is good and you know what are good things about persistent identifiers and where is the where is the issue part of this incompleteness and part of the thing that's the danger is if you start where things are all authenticated and, and good and, and wonderful is you start just typing this stuff in by hand and the copy and paste errors and like yeah. leaving one off and stuff like that and then propagating that bad information throughout the system. Ah, anyway. Nothing of your nightmares. I mean yeah that is a big problem and you know that's kind of as we've talked about many times, Adam, one of the problems with the repository um, at the university, there's no API for the ORCID, you know, for ORCID. So it is a lot of copy and paste. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, like you say, where these some of the challenges lie. And again, I suppose it's going back to the equity thing is, you know, for a long time, the university didn't have the funds to get a better repository. You know, we're just kind yes. of moving into that space now. So... That, that kind of, if you think about the fact that there are other researchers, other institutions relying on the quality of that data, yeah, that's that's you know, an equity, accessibility, um, it, it's about the fabric of the um, information space and scholarly infrastructure as a whole. Um, and when we did the um, PID cost benefit analysis, um, I just that we made available a couple of months ago. One of the things that we were pointing out is that the benefits may not come to the larger institutions that are funding some of these things again. To, to everyone, because you have that increase in quality and completeness of the underlying information. Um, and so, you know, get, getting that kind of quality, getting that completeness of information, getting that um, richness from every institution, even the one who has like 20, 30 researchers, that extra information perhaps puts something that another researcher finds, um, makes some kind of connection with, and you know, something better emerges. Absolutely. It's important. It is. And I suppose perhaps one way of kind of um, thinking about some of these challenges and perhaps one of the ways that we could start to begin to put more money into that is if some of the large funders were to inject some cash into this, um, such as, you know, I'm thinking about, do you think there could be perhaps an emergence of um, a funder mandate for PIDs such as ORCID? I'm thinking about REF, you know, next REF cycle. Do you think there could be a mandate for persistent identifiers for outputs? No. Well, no. Kirsty's very against that, so we'll go with Kirsty first. Not in first. the way you think. 
Okay. So I, I don't see funders mandating persistent identifiers in the same way they have open access or data management plans. Yeah. I, I think it's going to be a little bit more subtle. I get the feeling that it's probably going to go along the lines of it will just be there because some funders are already doing it. You, yeah. you can use your ORCID to upload your bibliography instead of typing it in. And I think those steps are going to become more and more ubiquitous and then less and less optional. I don't think they're going to make a big song and dance about it because I don't think it's got the weight of open access, so the weight that mandating open access would have. And I can see Adam is itching to disagree with me. <laughs> no, no, but let's, let's say <laughs> I, I have a different perspective, although I agree with what you said. So um, UKRI 060821 UKRI Open Access Policy dash final dot PDF. 4G, common unique PIDs for research management information, brackets, for example, identifiers for funders and or organizations, close brackets, are strongly encouraged. Mm -hmm. That's exact that's exactly what you've just said, right, Percy. That you know, yeah. they, they again they you know this, this sorry for, for for listeners, this is the UKRI open access policy. What has just been finally announced. No matter how the publishers try to stop it. Uh, publishers, do, do feel free to come and discuss this with <laughs> Absolutely. Orchid, wait, Orchid, semicolon, Orchid, the researcher identifier must be supported to identify all authors and contributors. Would anyone like to um, discuss what must be supported means? Because to me, that does sound like a mandate. And but, I think... But it says must be supported, not mm -hmm. must be included. That's true. Yeah. You so see, this must be included, must be collected. Yep. You can't publish unless you've got one. It says must be supported. So has the publishers have no own, there's no onus on the publishers to collect it. The field just has to be there. Yep. Yep, but that's for repositories. <laughs> sorry, that's oh, the publisher one. No, that's repo ah, sorry, that's publisher one. Um, and then it's exactly the same in 5D for repositories. The thing is, what they'll do is they'll lean on the repositories because, you know, they're UTRI and they, they control the money. And the publishers will say, you know what, you should really help out. Really help out. Because, you know, these guys aren't going to get any money unless you provide them with some information. But none of that is a... <laughs> when, you, when, when you see the phrase funder mandate, mm. I kind of imagine it be every paper submitted for the next rep must have an orchid for every author. Yeah. That's that's what funder mandate means to me. And so UKRI supporting orchids actively in their policy is brilliant, but I, I don't think I would call that a mandate. I'm I'm semantic. I'm I'm non semantics, I think. <laughs> yeah. On principles. No, I think see because I think pragmatically this is, uh, so in a way we are completely agreeing because pragmatically I think this is as close as you're going to get, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think for some of the other funders where they've said, you know, for example, you cannot submit this unless the PI has an ORCID ID or, you know, for some of the journals who will actually not let you go forward and click um, where there are 
technically mandates because the systems don't work without them. I think that, that again, is going to be part of the way forward, right? Where the systems don't work without actual persistent identifiers built into systems. I'm looking at you, research fish. Um, and I think <laughs> part of part of what's going to be going on in the actual funder space, and especially for a large part of the UK RI space, is that we'll see more and more nudges like this and more and more alignment with the plan S kind of thing, which again talks about persistent identifiers for author accepted manuscripts and each work that is funded and in a repository having a persistent identifier. Mm. Yeah, I think it's it's all nudge mandates. I don't think that so from what Holly was saying, I don't think there's gonna be a we'll give you more money in your in your budget if you do this. I don't think there's gonna be a mandate on that level where there'll be funding behind it. Mm. But all of these little nudges and these little encouragements and these these bits and pieces of sort of support and encouragement for these things and people saying you must have this. But I I don't think it's gonna be a bit a big song and dance mandate that's going to get us any money. But but page five, sorry, I have this in front of me, and I, it is my favourite paragraph that I've highlighted. I love that you've down. got the policy in front of you, Adam. Mine's sorry. upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, no, honestly, Holly, we really are this bad. That's, uh, um, <laughs> I will provide with, UCAR will provide an open access block grant to support compliance with this policy for both research articles and in-scope long-form publications. And I'm absolutely sure if you turned around and told UK right <laughs> that you've spent it all on getting a new repository just so that you can have orchids in it, they will laugh in your face. No, but we might spend it on, you know, for example, a better workflow for adding orchid IDs for contributors and co-authors that are not in your institution. I think that would be amazing. and. Brings me on nicely to something else I wanted to talk to you both about. <laughs> you just want the library, <laughs> uh, which is thinking about the connection between orchid transparency and recognition for authors. And I'm not just by authors, I'm not just meaning traditional the author in the traditional sense, but thinking more about contributor roles, sort of things like you know the credit taxonomy. Right. Yeah. Could you talk a bit more about that, Adam? Is there any potential? Or is anything work being done in that space between yeah. ORCID and credit? Yeah, so credit, um, uh, very strong movement to move away from just talking about the fact of who wrote uh, a research output. Right, so um, in the olden times, you had an article and it was published in a journal and you had a list of names underneath the title. And it was done by Bob, Alice, Robert, who wasn't Bob, um, and Jim, <laughs> right? Um, and the issue with that has always been that, you know, Bob wrote it. Um, Robert was like hanging around the lab, but he was quite senior, so he put his name in it. Um, Alice actually analysed all the data um, and was like, kind of quite key. Um, and Jane kept all the cultures alive because it was a biology paper. And, you know, none of us has worked on them, but most of them didn't actually have like the same contribution. Um, and so what would be really helpful to do 
is talk about those contributions and credit, big C, big R, E-D-I, big T, credit.nicen.org um, is, a, is a way of um, talking about the different roles, so it's contributor roles, um, the different roles that people have uh, in a research and in producing an output. And what it does is, so it's a clever name because it gives credit for the different parts um, of research. And it also, you know, kind of gives an indication of, like, the work that goes into producing research. Um, you can also look at it, it might facilitate some of those lenses that we want to apply to research, you know, on, like, how much contribution senior people do who tend to have their names plastered all over stuff just because, you know, they're head of a lab rather than doing anything. Um, how much like junior techs do, um, it can help with uh, the hidden ref, which yeah. again, I'm not sure how much people know about, but it's absolutely fantastic this year. Uh, a great effort on like kind of showing the non-returnable effort. So, um, so there's that link between being able to express your actual contribution to a work um, it's supported by an increasing number of publishers. Um, it now also transmits into your ORCID record um, to get transparency that way. I mean, there is also some other ways that ORCID supports um, transparency and equity. Um, if you think about it from like a EDI or equality, diversity and inclusivity point of view, um, because, hey, it's an identifier. So you can, for example, in blind peer review, just use your ORCID identifiers. Um, so you can have semi-anonymous um, submissions. So again, you can just have a set of identifiers on a paper. So it's only casual um, pseudo-anonymization, but it does help like for uh, reducing that kind of um, bias against kind of like identifiable and recognizable things, um, especially where people have issues like with recognition of names. Yeah. Speaking of peer review, also, um, ORCID, you can add things to your ORCID that are not research. So you can add your peer review activity to it. But if you peer review for a journal, you can get some sort of credit for doing that because you can put that on your ORCID. Also, memberships of committees and um, like conference committees and stuff like that. So it's sort of expanding out what you can get recognition for. Orchid's kind of becoming a kind of a profile kind of passport as well. You know, it's kind of becoming that kind of collection of things that I did as I passed through my research career, which is interesting. Yep. It's also really useful for those sort of um, like para-academic, so people like us who are here talking about this, um, who sometimes get involved in writing papers, um, that sometimes do peer review, things like that as part of day to day. So it's brilliant to see people that are starting out and also people that are on the edges to yeah. start getting credit for what they're doing in the academic space as well. Absolutely, and giving them the height and visibility as well. So just thinking about everything we've just spoken about has been incredibly stimulating discussion. What's the future for persistent identifiers? Adam. It could, be, it could be anything. It could be completely, you know, off the wall or something that you would kind of hope for for the future 
or you know something that might not actually be achievable in the next 20 years but um I, i'm going to say a number and i'm going to say a word the okay. number is 97 um and the word is intertwingularity there you go um so the, to explain 97 is the next kcd comic um it's uh about uh guys there's too many standards what we need is um Oh, yeah, we need to reconcile the standards. We need a uh, you know, fourteen standards, and at the end of it, oh, there are fifteen standards of what what I you know what I really hope is that what we do is we have uh, um, less pits, and um, that might be a funny thing for somebody to say, but um, I occasionally go to meetings and people say this thing, this thing. I don't really. You know, but what I think we need is a persistent identifier. And I generally go, no! <laughs> what you need to work with the community and identify what persistent identifier would work well for you and whether or not you need to, like, involve yourself in, like, schema or, um, you know, cover your taxonomy or use case. It, it's very, very rare that something actually needs its own unique persistent identifier. Um, Tenelson's idea of the interconnectedness of things, or um, you know, um, Dirk Gently, if you read any Dirk Adams. Um, so this idea that everything is kind of linked together, and in a system where you have perfect persistent identifier systems, perfect metadata, um, where when you when you look at a persistent identifier and it, it points to other stuff, um, that all works perfectly then you have a scholarly information and infrastructure um, that allows you to have first-class objects, um, institutions, uh, people, and it doesn't matter where they come from. So it gives you a global research infrastructure that is like theoretically language naive. So it's language naive, it's um, uh, geographically naive, you know, you, you have infrastructure that works, um, is sustainable, which is also really, really important. Yeah. Um, and it, it kind of allows research and citizen science and large institutions to all work together to elevate the public good. You should be PM. We should go to PM. <laughs> Kirsty. I, I couldn't agree more. You completely stole my, my point. Um, make. Um, and you said it far better than me, um, probably because, you know, it's your job. Um, but absolutely, the future for persistent identifiers needs to be this universality to make sure that if you click on a DOI, you can get to a version you can actually read um, and things like that. Um, I spoke, um, well, I say spoke, I had a small soapbox rant at an Orchid um, <laughs> event talking about the um, identifiers and the ref mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I made the point there that you know yes DOIs and ORCIDs and stuff could actually make the ref really really useful really really easy but at the moment they're useful but we can't trust them and that is a slightly shorter term mm. issue that I think needs to be addressed for the future that Adam was talking about to happen yeah. is that we need to be able to trust these things because if we can trust that you can click on an orchid and get every single DOI for the papers this academic has produced in the last five years, can you imagine how much easier the rest would be? 
Absolutely. And our and lives as repository administrators, etc. So for Yeah. And less fans. <laughs> Many less fans. <laughs> well so that, that's a short term future that I would like to see. There you go. Thank you. Well <laughs> thank you so much both of you for your contribution today. It's been a fascinating discussion. And we could talk about this for hours on end, I'm sure. Me and Adam do frequently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but thank you both and speak to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Open Knowledge Podcast. And thanks again to Kirsty and Adam for a stimulating discussion. We'll see you soon for more episodes.